This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello there, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I decided about two and a half years ago, almost three, that I wanted to extend the walls of my practice. Gosh, I've been practicing therapy, <laughs> literally practicing therapy, for 26 years. But this podcast is about trying to reach people, maybe, who are already interested in psychological issues, maybe even already in therapy but also people who might have just been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or having some kind of relationship problem that they can't seem to fix, or that last group of people who might never darken the door of a therapist or might not think they would, but would be just curious enough to listen into a podcast. So welcome to all of you. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that was actually brought up by a listener I'm getting more and more emails from people who are writing me to talk about certain issues, and I love that. That email, by the way, is AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and it's confidential. This listener initially wrote in to talk to me about the possibility of having guests on self-work, and he had some great ideas there. But now he says, my second reason for writing is to make a topic suggestion. Would you delve into financial infidelity in relationships? This recently was an issue for me. My partner's personal debt had been hidden from me for years. When I found out, I felt like there'd been an invisible monster living in my home. All of a sudden, it was visible, sitting there on my couch, taking up all the space and draining all the oxygen from the air. I felt like I'd been living a lie. Emma Thompson's line in the movie Love actually came to my mind over and over. She confronts her husband's emotional affair, and he says something like, I've been the classic fool. And her response was, yes, but you've also made a fool out of me, and you've made the life I lead foolish too. That felt like my life. It was heartbreaking, even though it was only about money. We are still working through it. I found a lot of wisdom in your podcasts on forgiveness, the victim-savior relationship, and mostly the regaining trust after an affair, which was the fifth episode very early on. It was so helpful for me to hear that a person who has had an affair will never fess up to everything at once. The truth will trickle out. That's been my experience, at least. Anyway, having a dedicated podcast might put all those pieces into one place. So I thought this was a great idea. And that's what's on the agenda today. Money. It is amazing how many people commit to one another and never touch the subject of money. We'll talk about the business of relationships, and then I'll offer seven ways of how to handle money well, but we'll also touch on what this listener wants, what needs to happen when someone's been secretive, whether it's overspending and debt or the opposite problem, being overly frugal or needing control, and hiding your money that your partner didn't even know you had. And all of this will involve talking about the regaining of trust. The listener email is from someone who identified with perfectly hidden depression. And if you don't know what that is, you might want to listen to episode three, but who explains what exactly she's doing to begin to undo what have been her perfectionistic habits. I thought her explanation was very clear and helpful and asked if I could share it with you. And she said, yes. So the email is less about a question 
as giving you her response and her ideas. So the next few minutes, we'll be talking about money and how to talk to your partner about it. I hope it'll be helpful for you. Let's face it, your marriage or your long-term partnership may be the biggest business you've ever run. Your spouse is your partner, and no matter whether you're living on a fixed income, you both work, or just one of you gets paid for what you do, so many decisions need to be made regarding money. I thought it was interesting. In the U.S. and Japan now, 60% of all households have two working parents, and that percentage is closer to 70% in Canada and Australia. So couples need to look at the small picture, the big picture, current needs, future concerns, It takes coordination and effort, just like it would be in a real business where things would be discussed, turned inside out, and rediscussed in meetings. But how do we usually talk about money in marriage? We try to talk about it when we're brushing our teeth in the morning or right before one of you is trying to go to sleep. Oh, I forgot to ask you, how much are we going to give to the church or spend on kids or grandkids or vacation? Or what's the plan for the holidays? Did you pay the telephone bill? We can talk tomorrow. I'm exhausted. Things have gotten easier in some ways with online and automatic payments. But sadly, human behavior is still human. So greed, control, trust, fear, anger, shame, all these emotions can get played out with money. Very sadly, I know of at least two suicides that were tied in with someone keeping a secret about money that had to do with an addiction. One of the spouses kept saying to me, it was just money. Why couldn't he have been honest with me? Of course, it wasn't just about money. It was about addiction and shame. But that's a hard pill to swallow when you're left with children who don't understand and will suffer. Not having enough money is, of course, a problem for so many households. These kinds of people who are incredibly stressed by getting bills paid and children cared for are often plagued not by poor spending habits, but by feeling trapped by circumstance. There's no easy answer here. But the following dynamics can be part of any relationship, no matter the amount of money involved. The business of marriage is simply being mishandled. Here are some common mistakes perhaps well-meaning people make. They may be doing things the way their parents did, even though it didn't work out so well for them either, or maybe it seemed to. I know my husband and I used to argue about me making my deposits for the money I made at work. And I was very, very stubborn about it. So finally, one day, my husband said, you know, you're so busy being afraid you're going to be like your mom that you're acting like your dad, at least around the issue of money. And I said, you know, you're exactly right. And we haven't really thought about it since. I was mimicking my parents' relationship with money, and the fact that control was so much a part of their discussion. My mom not having much control, my dad having all of it. So you may be handling things the way your parents did or trying not to handle things the way your parents did and still not seeing things rationally. But let's go back to these common mistakes. First, one person will take on the entire responsibility for finances. When this happens, the other may not even have a clue what's going on, and there will be a parent-child dynamic. 
This was the case for many families in the 1950s, just like my mom and dad, where women were given allowances by their husbands. To this day, this is a dynamic in couples and a huge mistake to make, even in a single-career family. Because it mimics this parent-child, both people need to know what's going on financially. If the relationship began by someone saving the other one from financial trouble, then this dynamic can continue. The savior wants gratitude and gets resentful if they don't get it. The victim, or in this case, the spender, never learns self-discipline or how to have a desire that isn't instantly gratified. We'll talk more about solutions to these problems in a minute. The second issue is one person will take on planning everything and how money is going to be spent. All the trips, all travel, or what the kids are involved in. Maybe the partner is good at organizing, so it seems a simple solution. But one, the partner can get tired of doing what you do well, and you can feel totally unappreciated or lonely and resentful. And the other one doesn't have a clue on how the money is actually being spent. He or she may be making it, and then not knowing, well, how is it being spent? The third problem, no one ever talks about money in the relationship. They keep their own checking accounts. Maybe each contributes an amount to a shared account, but never quite know what the other one is doing with their money, or sometimes even how much they're making. They're not involved in decisions together on what to buy, what not to buy. Or other people divide the bills and each pays their share. What's the problem with this arrangement? The couple never learns how to compromise or to work together to consider well, what does my partner want to do and how do I respect and honor that? There is little sense of working together. And discussions about it, when they're attempted, can turn into fights about trust very easily. Why do you want or don't want to have one account? Do you not trust me? Why do you want to know what I make? Of course I'm being honest with you. It can promote defensiveness when you don't talk about it. Another problem Both partners are engaged in chaotic decision-making around money, neither paying any attention to how much money is actually available. They're living high on the hog, as we would say in Arkansas. This could be part of mental illness or an issue with poor self-esteem. Spending money you don't have can be a part of hypomania or mania. You can hoard money as part of an obsessive-compulsive behavior. You can spend money obsessively. If you have a problem with low self-esteem, you may not feel okay about buying things for yourself, always buying things for other people, but not yourself. But when this kind of financial chaos occurs and spending doesn't get talked about, then the underlying mental illness or low self-esteem problem or hoarding or obsessive compulsive disorder, whatever it is, never gets identified and can go undiagnosed. Another issue can be that Money is reflecting either anger or issues with control. I've certainly seen cases where buying things was a way for one partner to show their anger or loneliness, to act out their feelings of resentment by spending. It almost gives them a sense that he or she now is grabbing the control. It's the same thing as when your child is trying to get your attention negatively. They get your attention okay, but it's not through something healthier. So, what are some answers to these very common problems? One of the things I suggest is that a marriage have what I term business meetings. You would never again run your business and never sit down and talk about the strategies about money and spending and buying. 
and balancing your account. It's recognizing that marriage and long-term partnerships have a business component to them. So let's talk about how you set up those business meetings for success. First, you create a space in your home where you can sit down together or you go to a coffee shop, but it's face-to-face. You sit down at the dining room table, you farm out your kids, you bring your laptops, your calculators, maybe even an old-fashioned pen and paper, and you sit down just like you would in a business meeting. You come prepared. There's an agenda that one sends to the other, probably the one who likes to control, but that's okay. The other one can add to the agenda. Know what you're going to cover. Savings plans, retirement goals, vacation ideas, or budget for kids or grandkids. Whatever is on the agenda, and you stick to talking about that. The third thing is you have these maybe monthly or quarterly. You want to meet regularly, not too much to overdo it, but not so little that too much time has gone by, and you're going to lose touch on the pragmatics of your relationship. My husband is actually in banking, and he understands all of this much better than I do. But I make myself sit down with him and look over these figures because I need to know. I mean, what if something happened to him and I was clueless about where our money was? That's not good for me or for our relationship or for him. It's not good for him to carry the burden. It's not good for our relationship to allow him to do so. So I ask questions and try to figure out what we're doing and how we're spending or not spending. The fourth thing is to bring to these meetings an attitude of cooperation and learning. Both of you need to be involved in the business of your marriage. You look at financial documents or online. You know, the reason why I suggest sitting down at the dining room table is I want you to come to that meeting with your best hat on, not tired and grumpy necessarily from something you're already mad about, but that you want this meeting to go well. The fifth thing is to set immediate goals and future goals. Be present-oriented, but also be future-oriented. You want to think short-term and long-term. Talk about what kind of sacrifice might be needed to accomplish goals. Decide who's going to be responsible for what to attain those goals. This builds huge trust in the couple. Something I suggest people do if they have some kind of long-term goal, but they're really on a tight budget, is to get an old-fashioned glass mason jar. And label that jar vacation to Florida or something. And then every now and then put in your loose change or your dollar bill or the quarters you found in the cushions of your sofa and put them in the jar. Have a sense of building something together. Even the kids can participate. And yeah, it may take a while for you to get the money, but it's a reminder that everyone's working together. Now, if you're overspending or have huge credit card debt, you can get help. There are books and programs out there that you can use. Dave Ramsey is well-known for his financial advice on how to get rid of debt. He really believes in getting rid of the credit cards and having a $1,000 buffer, crisis money, that you leave alone. But there are also credit counseling organizations that are often nonprofit and therefore free to the public. These folks can really help. And yes, you have to face the reality of what you've done or created, but they will not shame you because there's so many people, good, well-intentioned people that have problems with money. My last suggestion is if you get angry or frustrated, take a break. All of this can be hard to talk about, 
especially if you've been doing things in a way that hasn't been working for a long time. And it can be difficult to set up a new pattern. But remember, you wouldn't yell or make accusations in a meeting at your workplace. Or if you do, things probably aren't looking too great for you there. Treat this meeting in a similar way. So what if you find out that there's been a secret? Either you discover hidden money somehow, or you discover a huge debt that your partner has created. Credit cards that are maxed out. Just as the listener described, the work here is how to deal with the mistrust that's created. You have the obvious problems of paying off a debt, perhaps, or considering bankruptcy, but the emotional issues that surround keeping secrets can be extremely difficult. Regaining that trust has to be number one on your agenda. So let's go over the warning signs that trust should be given and signs that it could be. You don't want to trust someone again if they give you a honeymoon apology, which is superficial and maybe even part and parcel of an abusive cycle. They say, oh, I'm so sorry, it'll never happen again. You have to recognize that there's a pattern and that that pattern won't change. You don't want to trust necessarily if it's not accompanied by a sincere attitude of openness to your need to heal. If you get the response, I said I was sorry, I don't know why you're still so upset. We need to move on. These are not statements of someone who recognizes the depth of the impact of their behavior on you. You don't want to give trust if they blame you. There can be a context for the behavior, but the responsibility for that choice is not yours. It's the person who chose to hide money or to hide debt. So what happens if you can trust? What are the signs that recommitment and working on trust is worth it? First, they proactively do things to change. They go into therapy to better understand what was causing them to keep a secret. Maybe they question if they're depressed or if they have hypomania or mania. What was driving the behavior? But they seek help. And you begin to see that they're growing in their knowledge of themselves. The second thing is they reveal their own painful feelings about their hurtful choice. They talk to you about their own shame or guilt. As they figure out what was going on with them, they share it with you. They talk about what it felt like to them to know they were hurting you. And the third, of course, and this is what's tangibly most evident, is that the behavior stops or decreases to a significant extent. This can vary with the situation, but at least you know your partner has a plan on how they're going to go about changing their thinking or their lifestyle, maybe even their environment. So it decreases the chance of the behavior continuing. There's one other thing about trust that's important to consider, and this one is about you. Trust always requires a leap of faith. You will only have the information you have today. And if your partner is talking to you about it, has sought treatment, and has basically stopped the hurtful behavior, you will only know what you know today. So there will always be a leap of faith. You can know what you would do if they hurt you again, or if your trust in them is once more broken, and that can help you make that leap. But know that there's always a leap of faith. Our listener email is from someone who is trying to address her perfectionism, and she talks about the steps that she's taking to address the depression that is underneath her very perfectionistic stance. The first step was not packing it back into its box and pretending everything was fine. 
The second was telling others to make sure I didn't. I told my husband, my best friend, and my boss. I then spent two weeks crying and feeling bereft. Again, she told them about her perfectionism. So she said, I spent two weeks crying and feeling bereft and lost. My boss convinced me to go and see my GP, which I did. I informed as many people as possible to make sure I actually went. I knew that I would try and find an excuse not to go unless people were watching me. So I put pressure on myself. I would call that accountability. I didn't know what I would say to my GP. In the waiting room, I had rehearsed a calm explanation of why I was there. But when I started explaining, the tears came, and she got the message. It took me two weeks to decide to take the antidepressants she offered. Silly, really. Then she says, I'm two sessions into therapy. Again, I had very high expectations of myself here, too. I expected to have a quick word with someone. We would track why I felt like I do about myself and put a plan together that I could tick through. I feel like I should be working harder on it. Again, self-criticism. But noticing that is a step in the right direction. So here was my very short response to her. Thank you so much for letting me see and hear the steps that you followed to begin to change and heal. It's fascinating for me to see how they mirror the things that I wrote in the book or how some didn't. I'm always learning and this is very helpful especially the role of time and the expectation that this process was something else you do in a quick, organized, efficient way, while skipping the messy part of actually learning how to be vulnerable. Thank you for writing, and I hope you'll give me permission to use this on the podcast. Again, starting out trying to work on perfectionism and doing it perfectly isn't going to work. And I do think, again, I would change the word pressure. I don't think it's good to put pressure on yourself but by talking about the process with others, they can help you be accountable to yourself. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm delighted you're here. We're growing by leaps and bounds as far as listeners are concerned. And so I thank you for telling other people about self-work by leaving me ratings and reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen. Those are so helpful. And again, this whole podcast was from a suggestion from a listener. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can subscribe at my website at drmargaretrutherford.com. And that's a really easy way to keep up with the podcast because I send a weekly newsletter to you with the podcast and a weekly blog post. I'm over on Instagram at Dr. Margaret Rutherford, where I'm doing a series on what I've learned as a therapist, and I've started a Facebook closed group. We're around 850 members now, very diverse from all over the world. That is facebook.com slash groups slash self-work, facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. I'd love to have you join me. Thanks for being here. This podcast is a little longer than normal, but there was a lot of information to cover. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.